Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live in Ottawa, Ontario. A happy 2018 to everybody. Our first episode back in the new year. We took a bit of a break there since December, but we're back and we're going to have a series of shows for you talking to a bunch of different people about books, mostly. The first few episodes that we have are, are looking at some new books and very excited today to be joined by the author of Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Violence at Work in the North American Auto Industry, 1960-1980, coming at us live from Kingston, Ontario. Jeremy Malloy, welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Thanks very much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for the past couple of weeks since since your uh, editors got in touch with me uh, about the possibility of this, because it seems like such a timely topic to talk about, this idea of violence in the workplace in the context of everything that's been going on. And I, I'm just curious for you, before we get into the nuts and bolts of the book, how has the reaction been from people in the context of what's happened in the past year or so to what you're doing? Because not often, or at least for me, not often does the research you do as a historian all of a sudden become super relevant like this. So, so what, what has that been like for you? To be honest, I haven't heard too much about that connection, although I'm, you know, I'm certainly very aware of it. In the context of what I do, it's coming up a bit more and more now, obviously. When it first came out in September, October, I uh, didn't hear as much from readers about it. But the last time I did an interview about it, uh, I was on the radio in Kansas City, couple weeks ago and and Judy Ansel who interviewed me there for the Heartland Labor Forum she definitely asked about it about my you know the connections between obviously how widespread harassment uh, and and sexual abuse and sexual violence in the workplace has you know uh, become known as so it's starting to become more part of the conversation definitely about the book so uh, that is uh, definitely a connection and it's something that uh, in terms of specifically, gender violence is definitely a feature of, of the research I talk about my book, Sexual Violence too, to an extent, um, and just in this yeah, wider context of, of violence under capitalism. You know, people asked me when I was writing the book, like, what do you define as workplace violence, right? And I think what the, the conversation is, is showing is that, and it's something that reflects what I argue in the book, that uh, it's a it's a much broader and w- more widely shared experience, or I should say, set of experiences than I think people used to think about until maybe very recently. So I think there might be an awareness of the of the workplace now as a site of violence uh, and multiple violences in a way that uh, what even as you say six months to a year ago wasn't uh, as widely acknowledged or understood. Yeah, and I think that's what's really interesting. When I was going through the introduction, you make the point there that when people think about violence in the workplace or, or worker violence in the relationship between employees and employers. They, in Canadian t- context, point to things like the Winnipeg General Strike. In the United States, things like uh, Haymarket and, and those sorts of big riot events or, or strikes that turn into violence. But what you talk about is that there's a lot more, like daily things that happen that's violence. You start the book out, I think, in a very, I don't know, provocative is the right word, but a really interesting way, talking about legislation in the United States that allows people to bring firearms to work and the debate mm-hmm. that surrounded that and how that could lead to violence, right? Having more, having weapons in the workplace, how that's dangerous. So how then do you define violence in a, in a way that sort of makes sense? Because when most people see this title, right, the word violence, they think of physical violence, something that's tangible, somebody getting punched in the face or stabbed or whatever it is. 
but I get the sense that you're talking about something a lot broader. Yeah, myself personally, I try not to impose like a unitary de definition of violence because one of the things that I want to talk about is our definition of violence changes over time uh, and our understandings of what violence is change over time. And also, as a historian, what I was interested in was looking back and seeing, well, what did people consider violence? Because there's a lot of violence happening in these workplaces in the 1960s and 70s, but nobody really refers to it as quote-unquote workplace violence, mm. if that makes sense. It's not yeah. like a specifically bracketed social problem with like a set of experts and, and you know, things that they're going to do about, but there's quite clearly a lot of violence. And so what I noticed looking back is there's a debate over what constitutes violence in the workplace. Is what I tried. So I always wanted to be really alive to that. I wanted to be really alive to say, well, what were different people defining as violence? What were companies defining as violence? What were unions? What were individual workers? And that changes over time. You know, the, the, the two examples that really come to me that, that, that make me think it was valuable that I did that was number one, Pat Cunningham, who's one of the female, one of the pioneering female workers at Windsor Chrysler. You know, there was no female workers there basically until the mid 70s, where when the government basically forced Chrysler to start hiring female workers as a condition of, of getting some funding. Uh, and she experienced a lot of harassment and intimidation as one of the first female workers on that shop floor. You know, I asked her, I was like, well, what happened to you? Did you consider that violence? Do you consider that violence? You know, what you experienced in the workplace? And, you know, like, yeah, again, there was no physical, like, she never reported to me anything, anybody physically. Uh, you know, hitting her or anything, but it was a lot of, you know, comments and, and things being put in her face and, mm -hmm. and being, being followed after work and stuff like that. And she said, you know, at the time, I didn't, but knowing what I know now and having the experience I've had in the perspective, then yeah, I do. And so that gives you a, a, an understanding of how people's understandings of violence change over time. Mm -hmm. And also, um, there was a quote by a set of workers uh, in the 70s that said, basically, you know, why is it that when uh, a boss gets hit in the face by a worker with a pipe, that's considered violence and it makes the evening news, but we don't consider it violence when, you know, workers have heart attacks from working on the line or workers are crushed to death because the line's running too fast. Right. Why is that considered violence and that's not? So I was, yeah, I, I as you point out, it's a really expansive definition of violence um, that, that I employ. And I'm also really alive to the way that violence itself, what constitutes violence is a site of struggle. People are, you know, struggling to to argue what is, you know, to, to name and to define what is happening to them or what has happened to them, and I think that's also similar to the dynamics that we're we're seeing in the in the months since the book was released. And especially in the context right now, I mean, as we're recording this last week, I can't remember what day of the week it was, but was the Bell Let's Talk thing, and yeah. for as much of a problem as I have with Bell sort of making a commercial out of the whole thing, uh, the the idea that they're raising awareness and they're doing a good job in that aspect of it but you know if you talk about violence mental health issues and maybe a lack of respect for mental health in the workplace that that could be seen as a place of violence even if it doesn't necessarily lead to physical violence you know the the internal problems that people can have or, or the i don't know if that sounds right but at least with mental health if people don't feel safe or like they're unable to have an opportunity to express themselves or, or open up about what's going on you know, that, that could be seen as violent. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the question is with things that, like initiatives like, well, let's talk that, that I always want to talk about is, is, is what is the actual relationship between, uh, you know, workplace dynamics and workplace environments and, and, and uh, this thing happening. And that's one of the, you know, one of the things that, you know, that mental illness is not something that workers have. It's something that is produced in the workplace, right? Mm -hmm. It's not 
something, you know, it's a very individualized model, I think, of mental health sometimes where it's just seen as mental health is just, yes, we should talk about it. We should be open about our struggles about it. But it's always seen still as something that happens individually. And I still think we're, we're not mostly not taking that necessary step back and being like, is there something about the way that our society is set up socially, economically, politically that's causing mental health to be such a massive problem on such a wide scale? Like, you, you, do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. if, if it is a disease like any other, if 40% of people in one community were getting cancer, we'd start testing the water, right? Yeah, like, no, yeah, no, I don't know I why we were not testing the water with respect to mental health um, no, yeah. or the air. And, and so the, yeah, the thing with workplace violence is, 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 um, I wanted to, I wanted to have that conversation. I wanted my book to open a, a way into that conversation to say what extent, um, is the violence that happens at work because of the structural ways in which work was set up. Right. And, and, uh, you know, it wasn't that, you know, I tell people with respect to, you know, how much violence there was at these Detroit Chrysler plants in the late sixties and seventies. The, the explanation is that, well, Chrysler must have hired a bunch of terrible people and leave it at that. You know what I mean? I, just they must have hired like, you know, 500 to 1,000 terrible people over three years. You have right. to, you know, as historians start to ask bigger questions about why this is happening at a certain time and place and what are the factors that make it possible. Yeah, or, right. Uh, yeah. Like, it, it's like the, what would the, there was the experiment they took. I think it was college kids and they put them in a jail and they said, you, you are the guards, you're the prisoners. And they uh, told the guards, you can do whatever you want. And these are just regular people. And they started to brutalize the, yes. right? Like that sort of experiment shows that the, the situation has a lot to do with how people react, how people respond. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, and and when you were talking, there, the other thing I think of in terms of, of violence, and you know what is violence, what isn't, I think asbestos is a really interesting one, right? In the asbestos mines, um, mm -hmm. those workers, yeah, you're right. A lot of people wouldn't consider that violence, but you know a lot of those people, you know, got lung cancer, died early. You know that that's a violent act. Yeah, there's a there's a, there's a there's a point in which uh, during the early 70s uh, in the book I mentioned that the UAW I got this uh, from the George Jackson Serpent book Detroit I Do Mind Dying that they quote a UAW study that the the, the toll every year of, of injuries and deaths in the auto industry from things like exposures and and you know heart attacks and and accidents quote unquote and stuff uh, were greater every year of the Vietnam War than the U.S. casualty and death toll was in that war and so they're clearly quite trying to try to make that comprehension to like where is violence really taking place in American life in the 60s and 70s whereas you know the popular discourse is it's happening at Quezon and they're saying well no it's actually happening in Detroit and uh, you know California where these auto plants are. Wow. Um, and, the asbestos thing too is particularly like relevant for you know being me being from Peterborough, just with uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the series in the Toronto Star over the past year about about exposures by General Electric workers and and the the numerous workers that have cancer that they believe happened as a result of their occupations and mm -hmm. their struggle to get workplace compensation for that and again it's it's you know how do we how do we define that in the system how do we take responsibility for that how do we apportion this because the workers themselves. Uh, uh, being complex people have very complex reactions to their experiences at GE. You know, there are people who are quite upset about what's happened, but there's also people who talk about how it was a good workplace that provided a good standard of living for working class and middle class people in Peterborough. So these are, these are really complicated legacies. Right. Yeah. It's not as simple as if someone punches you in the face, that's clear. Right? Yeah. But yeah. It's, no. it, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a lot more complicated. So, so if we get into the book, uh, uh -huh. Specifically, why then the auto industry? You know, it's clear that these are complicated issues that exist in all industries. And I will say that I, I have a personal connection to the auto industry. My grandfather worked for Ford for a long time. My uncle had also worked for Ford in the plant. So, so I have a personal connection to this, which which it 
when I saw the title, it further intrigued me uh, because of that. But but why specifically look at the auto industry when these issues are, as you mentioned, universal? Well, I started this as my PhD dissertation. So obviously, like, I'm, you might be able to relate to this. I had these grand, grandiose plans of what I was going to do, right? <laughs> You're going to write so the greatest I, thing ever, yeah. Yeah, it was going to be amazing. <laughs> Everything was going to be in there. And I was going to do... Um, because I'm aware that the auto industry is like in the mid to late 20th century, you know, you can make an argument as the most important industry or, you know, certainly one of them, uh, you know, uh, in terms of labor relations, it's place in the economy, like it's a massively important industry, but there's a lot of things that it doesn't represent. It's, it's, it's not exclusively male as the book points out, but it's heavily gendered male. It's, it's manufacturing employment, it's working class employment. So there's a lot of things that get left out. So I wanted to do, and also geographically, I wanted to do Seattle and Vancouver, Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to do Toronto and Detroit, not Windsor and Detroit. And I wanted to, uh, did I have an East Coast? I think I just chose those four cities because I was being conservative. And I wanted to do, uh, I wanted to do postal work, yeah. uh, manufacturing employment, and uh, some type of office or retail employment. Okay. Uh, because I was, I was really interested in, for example, in the postal service, both Canada's. Uh, and America's Postal Service undergo an intense uh, restructuring and intensification of work in the 70s and 80s. Yet right. in America, there's you know there's several individual postal massacres which gave rise to the term going postal. Yet in Canada, where there's like an equal amount of class conflict at the post office in the 70s and people like Jean-Claude Perrault going to jail for defying Pierre Trudeau and stuff, you don't get that here. And so what I was really interested to say, well, why did that happen in America and not happen here, right? Right. So I started researching it, and basically there was just so much there when I started looking at the auto industry in both Windsor and Detroit, and, and such a good basis for a cross-national comparison because Chrysler, the, the, the focus of my work, my study, is uh, you know active in Windsor and Detroit, and it's the same union on both sides of the border, which really allowed some interesting kind of cross-border comparisons. I just thought there was so much there that there was no way I was going to do a good job if I spread myself too thin, and and I should just really focus on everything that was in auto. So it ended up being on auto. Um, But, you know, quite frankly, there are, um, I wouldn't say limitations, but uh, the study is the way it is because of auto, and there are, violence would look different in in different workplaces. Um, Jacob Reams, who, 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 was one of uh, my critics for this book at Social Science History Association pointed out, like, just ask the question, like, what would this look like if uh, it was a predominantly female workplace, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, retail or office or healthcare, and and you know, I said the, the 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 nature of the violence, who was using it, and how it was used would be different. Um, so that you know, that's one important thing to keep in mind. Um, that that I don't think this is certainly the last word on it, but it's an understanding of how workplace violence worked in one industry at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but but at the same time, you, as you mentioned, I mean, there's there's the limitations to that. But the auto industry, I think it, and, and sorry for cutting you off, but does it no. not? It does it not sort of represent something uniquely North American too? I mean, there's there's postal services around the world, there's retail offices around the world, and certainly there's other places that make cars. But it strikes me that the the auto industry in North America, particularly in Detroit, like there's something that is unique to it that this book itself, you know, if you look at, and I'd be curious if, if someone has ever done this, but if you look at the way cars are manufactured in Japan, for instance, if you would find uh-huh. the same stuff that you're finding here, because North America and cars, just the, the car culture that we have, just the way our cities and towns are built, as yeah. well as the manufacturing of it and the way in which it's just it's such a major industry, it strikes me as that it makes it, 
very much a North American study. This is a very North American study, and and I'm not sure about Japan. I know there is quite a lot of violence happening in the Indian auto industry uh, today, okay. and and very much of that earlier kind of of, of group violence, of, of like a group of people confronting or kidnapping a manager, right. uh, and that kind of cross class violence that we see. I'm not sure about Japanese plants, but I will say, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of like. You know, I think maybe I did go a little heavy there on on the limitations of the auto workplace, but it's it's a very iconic workplace culturally for the North American working class. Um, and another thing that I think is really really important about it is that it is uh, like the uh, heartland of Fordism, right? It's the heartland of the post-war compromise of of that these you know of the good working class jobs, quote unquote, that undergirded the 30 years of prosperity after World War II. And and so I'm really pressing for us to re-examine those jobs mm. because they were, uh, you know, as I find it, there's a lot of the roots of what we would call neoliberalism today in terms of, uh, you know, a, a lot of harassment on the job, a lot of um, instability in terms of frequent layoffs and being called back. Um, those are experienced by auto workers in the 50s and 60s. You know, we think of these things as extremely stable jobs. Well, they, you know, in fact, they weren't in terms of model changes or shift layovers. Um, and also what I think that you see in especially Chrysler in Detroit in the 60s is that kind of speed up and that intensive retaking of shop floor control by management that predates neoliberalism. So I think we get kind of like a sneak preview of neoliberal work arrangements. Mm-hmm. And, and and I argue that the violence that, that meets that uh, in Detroit and, and to some extent Windsor is a kind of sneak preview of the workplace violence that we'll see under neoliberalism, which is increasingly, I argue, an individual violence. Oh, interesting. So is that, as, well, we can get into this, but, you know, yeah. certainly the collective workplace seems to be going away and fewer and fewer people in unions um, yeah. and sort of that that idea. Uh, but but with respect to the, the auto industry specifically, I, I find it interesting that, as you mentioned, not as stable as people think, even though we're you know, bringing, bringing back those jobs and making everything great again with, well, with sure, manufacturing. I mean, but, but when we say like, make it great again and, and bring everything back, as you say, you're, you're nostalgic for a point in time that never actually existed. Yeah. I mean, as is always the case with nostalgia, right? These right. were, I mean, there are certainly things to be recommended about these jobs. They had union representation for the most part. Uh, uh-huh. They, they paid much greater than people with a high school degree or, or, or not even would be able to expect to have in the workplace today. They, uh, you know, had unions that were to some extent interested in social justice and, 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 and uh, at least uh, trying on some level at times to make things better for uh, racialized workers, female workers, et cetera, right. and making a positive impact in their local communities, like which is a capacity that we have less of if we, if we don't have unions. But, I mean, these were... Ruther, Walter Ruther, the, you know, the famous UAW leader at some point says, like, you know, we never did anything about conditions when he's talking about the 60s and 70s right before his death. He's like, you know, we were, he calls them gold plated sweatshops. Right. So, you know, the, 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 the wages and benefits are, are, are much better in the 60s and 70s. But Dodge Main, the plant that these workers are at, is 1915. Uh, horrible work conditions, horrible safety conditions, people dying all the time, you know, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. These, yeah, so no, they, they, you know, Donald Trump wants to bring it back, but he would not work 15 minutes in one of these factories. Right. Um, so th- I think that's something that we ignore. People talk about factory work, and I think they understand the monotony yeah. of factory work. Um, and I think what's underscored, though, is, is, the, is the brutality of these workplaces and, and the, the toll that they took on these workers. 
So I think that's important. And yeah, we can, if you would like, explore what I'm talking about in terms of the individualization, because I think that's one of the key historical contributions I'm trying to make with this. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I do want to get I do want to get back to that. But it also, as you were speaking, that made me think of this idea that in the past, certainly with millennials, but but there's been a softening of the culture that that people aren't as tough as they used to be. That uh-huh. you know, back in the day, you just roll up your sleeves, you go to work, you tough it out, and you were fine. Like, you know, like, yeah. Uh, so how much of what you're talking about is maybe part of this idea of people getting soft and needing to be coddled? And the idea that what you're identifying as violence in the workplace, some people would just say, that's the way it is. That's the way it sure. was. And you had to be tough to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Yes, people would say that. And and there certainly was a lot of violence that was seen as part of the job, right? Right. And and I think for men, uh, in terms of hazing, bullying, physical abuse, in terms of women, you know, sexual harassment was or has been considered part of the job, right? And right. and I don't think that so as we change over time, I think hopefully we get a better understanding of what things people should not have to deal with at work. But it, it, certainly in this workplace, yeah. And so well, that's another thing that I was trying to get at is like, what do we define as violence? Because there was stuff that was considered part of the job that we would consider violent today, mm-hmm. uh, whether that was exposure to conditions or how your coworkers might treat you and it be accepted. Um, and then, then we have this vision of workplace violence, I think, as we spoke about on the start, as something spectacular. Right. Right. Like we, uh, as as you said, like the Winnipeg general strike, or when somebody comes to their workplace with uh, with a machine gun and kills seventeen people. Right. And obviously that those are examples of workplace violence, and they're tragic. And 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 you know my book argues that those two are are understandable to on more of a structural level than we have previously been willing to admit. But it, what it also argues is those are the tip of the iceberg, and there's a, a lot more workers experience violence, a lot more workers use violence, a lot more workers have violence as part of their labor process than we we tend to want to admit. Because we do want to think things are just part of the job and we don't actually want to admit what the daily toll of working to produce value under capitalism actually means for a lot of people. But then how do we confront the the idea, the sort of free market idea, and certainly the, the NFL has had to deal with this, that you know mm-hmm. they say people know what they're signing up for. So when you go to the factory, you go to the plant, you go to work, you agree to work for this company, you are agreeing to what those conditions are. And then to say afterwards, this was violence or, or to try and get money as compensation for what happened there. The defense usually is, you know, you signed up for this, you knew what it was. If you didn't want to do this, you could have gone somewhere else. So, so how do we reconcile that? And, and not even just as a legal defense for things, but just as, yeah, yeah, right? it was very much, I felt like I was in a courtroom there for a second. <laughs> No, but just as the idea of, as as you say, if if this is part of capitalism, a big part of capitalism in North America is the idea of the free market, and that as the employee, if something is not right, you don't like the conditions, you, in theory, have the option to go somewhere else, to take your work somewhere else that either has better pay, better conditions, whatever it is. So how do we reconcile these two things? I mean, well, fortunately for me, Sean, I'm not a super big fan of capitalism, so I'm not, <laughs> right I'm not particularly wedded or invested to the idea of, 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 of individual choice and in, in employment in a free market. But what I will say is that, number one, the argument that, you know, people know what they're getting into, hypothetically, you know, you presented it as, as part of the NFL. I mean, I find that 
if it, if that is the NFL's actual position. Super ironic, considering I think as the years go by and more and more comes out, more and more people actually do know what they're getting into with football. We're seeing less and less people play football. Right. Yeah. Like I believe didn't Justin Timberlake say this week last week at the Super Bowl that he, you know, while he was about to perform at halftime, that he would not let his own son play. Yes, it is beautiful. This beautiful press conference where he says this. He's getting all this money from them. And he says, I wouldn't let my kid play. It's it, it's one of the most unintentionally funny press conferences ever. Oh, I should track down a clip of that. Yeah. yeah. It's so, so funny. I think that actually people, who, the more people do know what they're getting into, the less they do it. You know, the more people do know that what they're getting into is cigarette smoking, the less they do it. So, right. I mean, it's a similar example that was used to be Crawford, right? Right. So I don't think that we do actually believe that societally, even in a free market society. Okay. Uh, otherwise, otherwise people wouldn't approve of putting regulations on cigarettes, you know? Um, mm. but the other thing I would think of there is, is again, uh, you'd want to pull back to the larger choice. I mean, sure, you can make an argument that people have a choice whether to play football or baseball, right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, but if, if we if we want to understand that workplace violence um, exists quite a bit like across industries, right? Um, you know, and again with the recent wave of revelations about sexual harassment and abuse in industries, you know, I mean, we, there was a lot of revelations about higher status or profile industries like Hollywood or uh, uh, politics. But it's also, you know, there was that big story about how it worked in auto plants in 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 the United States and you know among farm workers. There's been so. Like we're starting to see, see again that workplace violence exists across the entire spectrum of labor. Right. So then we we don't actually have a choice. Where is one to go to work um, if violence is prevalent across all sectors of employment, which I believe it is. I mean, we're basic. You know, we don't have a universal basic income. Basically, outside of a few pilot projects, and and you know the level of social services that we furnish for those who don't work is is extremely uh, poverty level. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I don't think we do have a choice uh, about working and then thus about uh, depending on our different levels of, uh, of of where we come from and, and what kind of resources we can draw on. We have a diff- varying exposures to violence based on that. So I think we need to look at the entire environment and change that. And so, again, that's why my book was informed by, you know, why did this happen? Really taking it outside of looking at the individual psychology of people. Um, because I think that 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 gets us a, not very far down the road. And trying to understand what what a concept I borrowed from public health that helped me was the concept of the risk environment. Okay, so that being the risk that the that that people are willing to accept. Um, not exactly. So the risk environment comes from uh, Tim Rhodes and other researchers in public health who were trying to uh, address HIV AIDS related harms or trying sorry trying to. Drug-related harms that would that would uh, persist in higher levels of HIV/AIDS infection. Okay. So you know, originally there had been kind of like an individual responsibility model of well, people shouldn't share needles. Right. You know, people shouldn't have unprotected sex. So people shouldn't do these high-risk behaviors that might lead to greater you know transmission of, of HIV/AIDS. Right. Mm-hmm. And and the problem is that that doesn't get very far. Uh, you know, you can you know uh, just scientifically that doesn't work. To tell people, well, you should take responsibility and, and, and not share needles or use condoms. What actually matters, they find out, it's like, well, what's the environment that people are around? If you make the environment easier for people to make better choices, like, for example, if you provide needle exchanges, all of a sudden, like, the risk of people using dirty needles goes down because you've changed the environment, right? Yeah. And so in what I, what I took a look at in terms of, uh, the labor uh, situation in the 60s and 70s in these auto factories was that it created an environment where the likelihood that somebody would think that using violence was a legitimate response to their situation was very high. 
And so, um, you know, what do we do to change that environment? And that's different with different kinds of violence. It's different with different kinds of workplaces. But I do think that we need to make kind of structural environmental level interventions into workplaces in meaningful ways um, to really address uh, the roots of why violence happens. Okay, so so that's really interesting. The idea that the auto industry and the workplaces in the auto industry during this time that you're writing about actually fostered violence. Yes. And in how does a workplace then foster violence? Like how does that manifest itself in a place where when you when you listen to employers talk, right? And and certainly the the research I've done personally is earlier than this and it's not in the manufacturing sector, right? Like I, you know, broadcasting is very different in terms of what people are trying to get out of each other. As you're talking, I can think of cases where things could be considered violence within the broadcasting industry in the 1930s. But in the auto industry, there's a tangible product that has to come out at the end of it. So when you listen to employers talk, or certainly, and I've, I've read about Henry Ford and all that, his whole goal or stated goal was to put people in a situation where they could make cars in the most efficient way possible. That's uh-huh. the goal. That's how you're going to make money. How does the environment in which production is key, create cars, build stuff, in what ways does that foster violence? Because to me, violence in any way, even if it's overworking people or harassment, sexual harassment, whatever it is, that is counter to the efficiency of the space, reduces the amount of work that can be done. So why would the structure of the space that is established by the employer be one that allows, permits, or even promotes violence when, to my mind, it runs counter to the ultimate goal of the plant? That's a good question. So looking at Chrysler, for example, in Detroit in the 1960s, theoretically, yes, what Ford laid out, obviously harmony would be great because harmony would lead to theoretically the greatest possible production and anything that detracted from harmony would theoretically be, uh, you know, discouraged, right, as an yeah. kind of production. But uh, you know, like a lot of theoretical things when you're actually running a factory that 20,000 people work at, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen, right? Right. And so bigger picture things get privileged over other things, and, and it's the combination of what you choose and what you discourage that, that creates the workplace. So specifically with this Chrysler workplace, it's the late 60s. Boom time, you know, there's this Vietnam War boom uh, for American automakers. Mm-hmm. Production's high, demand is high. Chrysler, though, is dealing with competing with not only the other big two, but they're competing with increasingly Japanese and German automakers who have a greater and greater share of the market as the 60s and then, of course, 70s and 80s will go on, right? Mm -hmm. So they realize that during this period of economic productivity, they need to basically make as much money as they can. Right. And Chrysler being a historically undercapitalized company, unlike Ford or GM, and has never invested that tons of money in automation, realizes the best way to do that is to hire as many people as possible. Uh, sorry, they hire less people, work them longer, work them harder, right. and uh, and produce as many cars as they can with the smallest workplaces they can. So again, we are still talking about efficiency. Right. We're still talking about maximizing productivity from the workforce that you have. But now we're starting to see how you can do that in ways that actually might encourage violence. So especially what they do is they hire a predominantly African-American young workforce that has less seniority, less rights, less status in the workplace than the previous generation in Detroit of largely Polish-American workers at these plants. And they hire more supervisors to drive the workers harder um, in order to get more work out. So they decide yeah. to manage people 
through harassment over time. Uh, and, uh, you know, they don't invest in things like safety. Uh, they don't, you know, they run the line as fast and as hard as they can because, again, that's seen as most efficient and most productive. Right. And you have, you know, mostly black workers being driven really hard uh, by mostly white supervisors with a lot of verbal harassment involved and threats of firing in a city that, you know, had been riven by racial tension and just had had in 1967 a major uprising over the, you know, treatment of African-Americans generally by the, the powers that be in the city. Right. right. And, 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 and and basically what you're describing could be also have taken place on a cotton plantation in the 1840s. <laughs> I mean, sure. I mean, there's definitely a, a race management aspect here, yeah. and, and there's, there's there's a you know everything is secondary to getting a job there. So, I think I think I'm hopefully starting to paint a picture of, of how these changes actually yeah. work to foster a lot of a lot of harassment and a lot of violence. And you know what I did in my book at that at that Detroit plant uh, was I I went through the grievance files for 25 years at that Dodge Main plant, which is the main Chrysler plant in in Detroit, from 1950 to 1975, and I was able to count. Basically, every grievance I came across that related to violence. And, of course, that's a partial look at violence. There's so many violent things that happen that were not reported or we don't know about. But yeah. this was allowed me to get a sample. As, you know, as historians, it's what we have. And I was able to trace how even with less people in the plant in the late 60s and early 70s, the amount of number of violent incidences in these grievance records went way up. And interestingly, the amount of violence directed at supervisory personnel and plant guards went way up. So, I mean, it's obvious that there was an environment created that had a much higher risk of violence because of the way that the factory was run. Hmm. And, and how much of that boils down simply to then trust between employer and employee? Because the case that you described, obviously what's happening is they're bringing in people with the intent of lowering wages, having more control over mm -hmm. the workforce and trying to, in, in this sort of subversive way, may, be as efficient as possible, be as profitable as possible. In that environment, though, there can't be a lot of trust between the employer and the employees. And it seems to me that if you can create uh, a situation, I think co-ops, right, every, every like six months, either CBC or, or someone does this glowing profile about a co-op that is working well and everyone gets along and it's like a family and i'm always sort of dubious of those a little bit but sure the, the idea is that the management and the employees they're they're on the same team whereas what you're describing is a situation where the employees and the management are set up to be opposed to each other and, and also the union is too right so the UAW here, which is the locals are predominantly uh, run by uh, older white workers that don't have a strong connection or sympathy to what's happening with the younger black workers at the plant. And so and they see all, and so a lot of the black workers feeling abandoned by both parties are forming their own black workers unions, like like the radical Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, who they increasingly are you know responding to violence in the factory and articulating a very violent rhetoric themselves. So yeah, it's an atmosphere of a lot of distrust and a lot of paranoia, and I certainly think that that's part of it. But I also one of the things I, I liked that that came up for me in the book that I didn't understand going in. When I started writing this book, I was really concerned with like what what caused violence? Why does violence happen at workplaces? Okay. Right. Yeah. And and I and I think I've supplied some useful historical evidence to why violence happened at these workplaces and what we can learn from that. But also as I realized how saturated in violence these workplaces were, 
at all different levels flowing in all these different directions, I became really, really interested with like, well, what an impact would that have on the workplace? Like this is something that would affect, you know, how every, how the cars got made, the culture of the workplace, how people interacted with each other on an everyday basis. And so you, I think you've really, you captured, yeah, that environment of distrust and paranoia was, was very strong at Detroit plants in the sixties and seventies, but plants even like in the Windsor plants, which were much more cohesive, Partly, I argue, because of a legacy of racial exclusion in those plants mm-hmm. um, and a legacy of, of gender exclusion in those plants into the 1970s. So in the Detroit plants, I, I, I describe what I what I describe as outsider violence, where people who feel alienated and, and feel like they're being shut out of, of the workplace and the power structure and that they can't trust uh, their union, they can't trust their boss. There's there's individualized violence happening there, right, as a reaction. Yep. Uh, and, and that's not, that doesn't describe all the violence that happened, but I think it captures the kind of overall tone. And, and in, in Windsor, though, where they're because of these exclusions and because, as I point out in the book, of their 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 better economic uh, position in those locals because of things like the auto pact, um, they have more cohesion. But there's still being violence being directed, but it's more insider violence. Mm. Um, I draw on E.P. Thompson's theory of moral economy to talk about, um, uh, and this isn't always true. Uh, Sean Antea, who's a master student at Trent, has pointed out that some of the violence that workers were using uh, was, you know, in service to maybe a more revolutionary kind of uh, leftist idea. Uh, but there also were, I think, accepted standards of how workers were to be treated in that workplace and how the job was to be done. And those were also enforced with violence. So if a supervisor was seen to have crossed a certain line or if a worker was seen to have crossed a certain line into how things were done, there would also be violence there. So, you know, in a, in a workplace that may had a much higher degree of cohesion, there's still violence there to enforce norms mm-hmm. and to be and to be targeted as at outsiders. Right. So when when Pat Cunningham or other women came into the Windsor plant in the mid 70s, as she said, threatened the men, uh, you know, men felt threatened by the fact that a woman could do their job even, you know, at that time. They had violence directed against them. So there's their violence works in, in the situation we described in Detroit where it's outsider violence, there's a lot of distrust, but also in the insider, when there's a lot of cohesion, there can be violence in an in-group way directed against outsiders or directed against people who violate the line, the norms. Right, because, because yeah, it, it's so interesting to me. And, and even not, it seems to me that in certain, some of these revelations that have come up recently, when things become too insider, then there's violence within that inside group that doesn't get out because that inside group is so insular. It can so, be. So it's not necessarily just to the outside. It can also be against each other. Yeah. And I mean, like one of the things I was struck by when I was researching these plants in the 70s is I was like, why were people freaking out about this? You know, like, I mean, we're talking about, you know, beatings with weapons and and homicides uh, going on at these workplaces. At some point, did everybody in North America agree that that was just part of the job in terms of factory work? You know, (laughs) And, and there's a part of it. It's like, you know. These are working class people who work in factories who, you know, don't aren't considered as important by, you know, the media or, or, or whatever. But I do think that there was a level in which it was the factory was considered a discrete world. And what happened in there happened in there to some extent. And it was understood among the people who worked there. But like uh, it was not seen as something that was dealt with in, in, the, in the greater society because there is. There are moments throughout the 70s in the workplaces I study where the, the violence is so spectacular that it becomes because of a criminal trial or media coverage, it becomes like a major story. And the New York Times does stories on how much violence there is in the Detroit factories. And um, so does Newsweek, for example. But at no point is that question asked about like, well, 
why is there so much violence happening at work? And like, well, what kind of like, what's what, how much violence should there be at work? And you know what I mean? Like, right. what, what are we expecting as a society in terms of what you should be expected to go through at your workplace? Like, right. That doesn't happen until the mid to late 1980s, which I find really interesting. And as I kind of close out the book, I point out that when, when we do finally get an understanding that workplace violence is a problem, and it's you know connected specifically to the workplace, and there can and should be things that we do to to to, to try and deal with it. Then the problem, though, I argue, gets defined in ways that like uh, a lot of violence gets left outside the box. And we've talked about many different kinds of violences, and it gets defined in a very individualized way. The larger violence issuing from environment or the labor process or things like that um, are not really considered part of the story. And we're still, I think, wrestling with that part of the equation now in our in our understanding of workplace violence. And, and you know, judging back to how it was how it was defined when it first became named as a discrete problem in the 80s. Well, it seems to me that, as you alluded to there, a lot of it has to do with class, that, you know, if I'm not in that situation, then whatever. It doesn't affect yeah. me at all. You, like, you're driving your car. You don't think about how it got made. Like, we, like I'm right. on this Apple computer. Most of the time, I don't think about Foxconn, right, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then the other, I think, would, to a certain extent, be, if, if not purely racial and obviously there's a racial element to it there's also a geographic element to this that if 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 i live in california texas florida wherever what what do i care what happens in detroit Mm -hmm. i I mean in this specific case right so the the way that these plants are centralized you know if i'm outside detroit if i'm outside michigan if there's violence in the work plants or the auto plants in detroit well okay i mean I'm I'm living in Boise. Like, like sure, like that's true alone, too. Right? Although like, although I will argue that Detroit does get used over and over again, especially in this period. And 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 um, uh, Jefferson Cowie does a good job of explicating it too in his book Staying Alive. Like Detroit gets used then as it gets used now as this iconic American working class city. So it's not just what's happening in Detroit; it gets used as a stand-in for working class America, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that that's okay. Uh, no, no, I know. Right. I'm just saying that, like, so I think it it, it is it does get a bit more media play than, say, a, a, a similar working class city would go to. But I think another reason is in terms of uh, when I was in conversation with, with David Goldberg, uh, who's a historian at Wayne State, about this. And he pointed out that a lot of it gets interpreted at the time as being connected to the quote unquote black problem in the United States. Yep. And and he was like, you know, uh, white people have agency in, in the discourse and black people don't. So black people's violence is considered, uh, you know, and this you know was not solely or exclusively black people's violence, but it was racialized as such. And and thus it's seen as kind of group violence. And, and when, it, you know, it began to be committed by white people in the 1980s in a spectacular way at, at post offices, all of a sudden we had to understand it psychologically because white people in America are afforded agency in what they do in a way that African-Americans often aren't. Right. Uh, and it's just belonging to some kind of like larger group consciousness. And I think that that, that was pretty, uh, insightful. Right. And that, I, I think that doesn't just necessarily apply to, to black people either. Right. It's you, you certainly the same thing happens if there's a violence, violence in today's context by a Muslim individual, yeah. right. They represent then all Muslims and, and that's not like, it, yeah, it, it seems to happen to minorities and, and not to, uh, to white people. I, well, I do. I, no, I would ahead. argue with the book that just to quickly, I do think it does happen to white working class people. I do think that they okay. are. I think it's unproblematically assumed that white working class men are violent or can be violent. And one right. of the contributions I was trying to make in this book is again, is that's not an intrinsic part of being white and working class. That it's part of the right. structures of white working class life in the sixties and seventies that encouraged violence. It's right. not, you know. Yeah, and, uh, and the way they vote too, right? They, they often get clumped together as 
white working class. This is why they vote. They vote together. Um, yes. and so it, uh, doesn't, it doesn't acknowledge a diversity within that community. Yeah. So, so, I think so, yeah. so yeah. yeah, the working class here is multiracial. Uh, it's not just a white working, you know, that fantasy of the white working class that, that people bring up only to destroy it, but only to justify their own, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's really been an abused kind of political trope, especially with the rise of Trumpism. Um, but yeah, the working class that you see in my book is a multiracial working class and it is one that is not intrinsically violent or, you know, it has those. The, it has a risk environment in which it exists. I do want to get back to this idea of individualism too, and how this all plays out, because I think this certainly speaks to current issues and how all all it works. But one of the things that's interesting is that in the early part of the 20th century, from the stuff I've read, the formation of unions, the idea of collective workplaces where we're in this together for whatever it is, better conditions, fewer hours more wages, whatever it is that we're fighting for, this collective identity and the process through which unions tried to forge that collective identity was a very violent process. And yeah. a lot of people associated unions with violence and yes. associated left-wing movements that are associated with socialism, if not communism, as violent entities. So yeah. I'm curious as to how we get to the point from unions being seen as a source of violence to the individualization of workplaces and as fewer people are members of unions, how that influences violence and perhaps an increase in violence. Yeah, so I mean, that's one of the major historiographic contributions I'm trying to make. I start the book with that example about the, you know, people pressing for laws in which they can bring a gun to work. Yeah. Um, and I say at the start of the 20th century, if you're bringing a weapon to work, you're protecting yourself from the boss or from the, from the RCMP or from, uh, you know, the, the state police or whoever uh, was working on behalf of your boss. And now people are arguing they need to do it to protect themselves from each other. And I think that that's really fundamental to what happened in terms of the experience of class in North America in the 20th and early 21st century. So historiographically, the, the kind of labor violence you talk about is very well represented in history. We've, we've written a lot about it and, and, and studied it a lot. But I think there's a kind of assumption, um, which is maybe starting to be unsettled now, that after you know, the Wagner Act and PC 1003 up here, that like that kind of that kind of you know compromise between labor and capital in the state, that that violent class conflict kind of stops happening, right? That's mm -hmm. the bad old days of, of class class war, right. and, and that doesn't happen. The labor question, right? Yeah. And and I said you know. We have that detente and, you know, labor, uh, mainstream labor basically hives off most of its more radical aspirations for reshaping society or transforming capitalism. And, 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 you know, we get down to the serious late 20th century business of consumption, right? And, uh, what I argue happens is class conflict doesn't disappear. Class conflict mutates in all kinds of ways. And one of the ways it mutates is, is, is violence becomes individualized to reflect, I think, an increasingly atomized individualized society. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I think you can see that in the 60s and 70s. I think it's uh, in the what in the book, what I'm trying to trace is a new kind of form of of class violence and how that has historical roots. Um, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, all violence that happens in workplaces is a reflection of class conflict. It's not. For example, you know, harassment and gender violence uh, to, to name is obviously a reflection not just of what happens at the workplace, but also patriarchy and the historic gender dynamics in North American society, for example. Mm -hmm. But. The overall tenor of workplace violence does change from being collective to individual over the course of the 20th century. And I think that that's something that we as historians, and even if you don't consider yourself a labor or working class historian, you should be really alive to. Because I believe that, uh, you know, class and class experience 
and the experience of living under capitalism and going to work remains fundamental, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, but it changes. And what I'm trying to do in my work is trying to kind of understand the ways in which it changes and how the terrain of class conflict shifts. And one of the ways, uh, I believe, is, is individual violence uh, and how that experience becomes more and more individualized. And so I think that's hopefully one of the fundamental contributions I'm making towards a conversation where we can understand a world in which we're all individuals, yet still profoundly class does continue to shape our lives, even if it's not as recognizable as it maybe was in 1910. But that rise of that, and then you mentioned that it's the 1980s where people start to look at this as a, a, a real problem. Yeah, it, it, it seems like when it's a collective, right, and people come together and then there's violence, you can look at that and say, all right, well, what's going on, large group of people? When it's individuals and it happens on an individual level, mm -hmm. what seems to me often happens is that it gets brushed aside as, well, that person was just crazy, that person yeah. snapped, whatever it was, and therefore we don't look at it as systematic. So it seems like those two things, in my head, just thinking about it, are in conflict with each other. And and so maybe that is maybe that is a blind spot why it's taken us so hard to uh, taken us so long to start to put this together. That 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 you know workplace violence, as I write about in the book, is is part of a larger structural way that workplace is organized. But if you just consider it, think about the the laughter and and you know bitter bitter hollow laughter that happens online after yet another gun tragedy in the United States. Where somebody says, oh, you know, who could have seen this coming or thoughts and prayers or, you know, right. acknowledging the fact that what, you know, what used to be dismissed as the individual act of, of a, of a unhappy or disturbed person is now quite obviously deeply connected to the fact that the United States is awash in guns and mental illness, right? Yeah. And that you have to look at that as a wider structural thing. And, and, you know, I would point out just that these mass shootings in America began at the workplace. Um, you know, which is a point Mark Ames makes in his book on Coastal, I believe, and it's, it's still a significant point. And uh, so just like that or, uh, you know, individual workplace violence or individual gun violence or in the case of the uh, project I'm working on now, addiction, what was once understood as something that just happened to individuals or as we talked about with mental health earlier in the, in, in the show, if you start to pull back and say, well, why is this happening over and over and over and over again? Um, you, you realize the necessity to look at it structurally, but also to look at it historically and how it's changed over time uh, is 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 really important and somewhat sobering as, as well. Right? Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah. Yes, um, um, this was... we all even even you know me for the past whatever six weeks or however long I've, I haven't been teaching. I mean, my workplace is my apartment now, right? For the for this time, I'm, as I'm working on other things, and even in that scenario, you're you're going to public spaces that are workplaces, whether it's the archives, libraries, whatever it is, we all exist in these spaces. So it's mm -hmm. very important to recognize the processes, systems, whatever it is, the structures that, that can promote, create violence. Absolutely. And recognize that we're doing work and we're doing work in all different kinds of ways in our life, sometimes paid and sometimes not. And trying to ensure that that work is is respected and safe and and at least adequately compensated um, is, is something that we need to be aware of in this society where work is breaking down into such tiny pieces of gig work and, and unpaid work and care work and and all these ways that, that maybe exist outside of a traditional nine to five year an officer factory, but are very much labor, as you know. Right. So, again, this book, if, if anyone who's listening was on the fence about this book and thinking, well, it's just a a labor history or it's, or it's just about the auto industry there's clearly much wider ramifications for this so we encourage everybody to go get the book check it out it is blood sweat and fear violence at work in the north american auto industry 1960 to 1980 
We have been very pleased to have Jeremy, Jeremy Molloy with us today. Jeremy, thanks so much for the time today. Sean, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our talk. If anybody has any questions or comments for the podcast, it is HistorySlam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.